So, hi, my name is Asya Balu, and welcome to the Great Design Lead Podcast. I am currently a program specialist at the Temple University Lenfest North Philadelphia Workforce Initiative, uh, and currently right now I'm working on a multitude of projects with them, including helping uh, residents of the North Philly community learn about COVID-19, the vaccination, creating programs and events that will kind of help them through this tough time. So I'm really excited to be here. That is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, really takes me up for my nine to five. <laughs> well, um, well, yeah, Asya and I have known each other forever. Uh, forever. <laughs> we, uh, we went to the same elementary school, we went to the same middle school, same high school, we're in the same city for college, but she's one of my very, very, very best friends from high school. And, um, <laughs> And yeah, so so I absolutely love Asya, and uh, <laughs> I love and, you too. and uh, the the thing about like the reason why I wanted Asya to come on the podcast, other than the fact that I absolutely love her, um, is because uh, she uh, works in hospitality and and studies hospitality at Temple, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about that because I'm a user experience web designer. And so I think that it's really cool the way that uh, she looks at um, guests and uh, people in her space and, and what their experience is like and how I look at users and focus on their, what their experience is like. And I realized that we probably have a lot of the same thought processes through Definitely. the things that we do. But I think there's gonna be we weirdly get... overlap. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but before we get into that and everything like that, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more just about you. Um, and when we talk about hospitality and things like that, I remember growing up with you that you were one of the most well-traveled friends that I had. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I wanted to ask you, like, when did you start traveling? Like, uh, did that have any impact on when you decided to do what you do? Um, uh, I wanted to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So traveling is pretty much a part of, I feel like my bloodstream at this point, like I, I don't know a time when I haven't traveled really besides the pandemic, but I literally, when I was born, my mom took me on a plane a week after I was born to Canada to meet the rest of my family, like on her side of the family. And so I've been on planes like ever since I was born, pretty much. My dad used to travel a lot for work. Um, and so he would be gone for like a week or two at a time. He would be somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Asia, like Af like you name it. He was there like South America, Africa. Um, and so he did a lot of traveling. And so on those trips, sometimes he would like take us. I remember we would go to New York every once in a while. We went to London. Um, well, that was more for a family's wedding, but he still had some work stuff. Um, and so I pretty much grew up with the travel bug, really. My life has been on planes. I've, I honestly, I think the total is at like 10 to 15 countries maybe I've been to. Um, and honestly, it just, it hasn't stopped. And I think that's what's kind of informed my love for like the tourism and hospitality industry and why I decided to go into that major overall was because I can't imagine a life of mine without traveling. Um, I can't imagine like not being on a plane the last year and a half has been so hard because I haven't been able to go anywhere. I was supposed to go to Japan for a study abroad for like three months last summer. And, you know, now it's on my bucket list to go after all this. But yeah, I really can't imagine, you know, life without planes and traveling. <laughs> I, I always thought about that because I remember uh, the people that I knew that 
traveled the most were you, <laughs> Ru- Ruby from high school. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Ruby Hassanali. Uh, and, and she she went, I remember uh, uh, senior year, she was like gone for a large part of the year because she was doing uh, the religious trip. Yep, um, yep. And then I had some close friends in my my neighborhood that uh, that lived in Singapore for a really long time because they were working with air products. Oh, um, I've been to Singapore. I have not, <laughs> but I it's wanted cool to ask you a little bit about like like the town where we grew up. So both of us are from Allentown, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, not a lot of people traveled for the most part. Like I, I I don't know if it's kind of like American culture or or what it is, but like most people they would have like the vacation that's like two weeks two week vacation a year. Um, you would go somewhere in the U.S., maybe Canada, maybe uh, uh, Mexico. And uh, a lot of people, um, have the, the idea of going outside of our continent uh, is something that a lot of people would never consider doing. And then it wasn't until I took my first trip uh, outside of like Canada, Mexico, U.S. And it was the coolest thing ever (laughs) and and I don't know like does that change the way that you kind of look at the world a bit going to all these different places a hundred percent yeah I mean I remember like growing up and hearing about people like not even having a passport and to me that just seemed like the craziest I feel like my life growing up was passport photos and like making sure my passport was up to date which is a whole other like you know debacle in itself but I remember like Emily you remember our friend Maddie like she yeah. didn't have a passport for the longest time and I just thought that was the weirdest thing ever <laughs> I was just like you're so strange how are we friends because like I don't get it um suffice to say we're still friends we're all good but passport. <laughs> but like yeah I just I remember thinking it was the weirdest thing ever because I mean I've been to I've been on like religious trips into the Middle East I've been on like le- leisure trips in like London Malaysia Singapore I go to Canada pretty much like every single year. I like, I can't imagine not traveling. And so I think it's informed a lot of my like life decisions and life like outlook. Like I've seen the way people are in the United States, but I've seen the way people are in Tanzania, in Africa. And it's so different from our upbringing. And it's so different in like London, Malaysia. Like, I just think that the world is such a small place when you really think about it, but it's so beautiful. Like all the differences, I don't think that I would have had this major, like done this if I hadn't, you know, traveled so much. So I think it's informed so many of my life processes, which is kind of crazy to think about. Oh, I, the, the, the idea of going to, to all these different places and actually making my lifestyle so that I can go on all those trips and it's not going to uh, dramatically harm my career um, which is something that's like super normal in the U.S. is like you just don't travel and then right. I I, uh, I I I met these people um, in school who were from Europe or they were international students and for them it's just so normal they're like oh I've been to Italy I've been to Greece I went to this Mm -hmm. place with my parents it's a little bit easier because you're closer and Mm -hmm. it's not this like 12 hour plane ride um (laughs) if you're going from like Romania (laughs) to another country in Europe um so much easier uh, (laughs) so much but but the thing is is that um uh this may be a weird thing to say but I know people that are like, oh, I would love to 
like go with Elon Musk and live on Mars and be in a totally different place. And I'm like, have you been to a country where all the signs are in a different language? That's how it feels. (laughs) Very true. So true. (laughs) Like go do that first. (laughs) I'd be like, well, I think I'd rather stick to the world that we know maybe than the world that I have no idea about. Yeah, that blows my mind too. I don't get it. So I mean, um, kudos, but no. <laughs> I I looked into um, uh, Temple's program for hospitality management, yeah. and I saw that there were um, a couple different tracks. There was the the event and entertainment management, sports and recreation management, and then tourism and hospitality management. Yeah. When you were looking at these programs, what what like what thought process did you go through when you were trying to decide which way to go? Yeah. So I actually, this kind of starts in high school where I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. Um, and then I realized that a, I fell asleep in every single science class and, um, (laughs) yeah, I got really good at it. And B, I don't really, I can't really do blood or like veins. It kind of freaks me out. And I was like, maybe this isn't it for me. So I went into temple as an undeclared major, actually, it was totally undecided. I just took gen eds for my first year as I was trying to figure it out. Um, and because I love, you know, the world so much, I was thinking about something about international affairs or political science. And I didn't like some of the poli-sci classes as much as I thought I would. Uh, and we didn't have, there's no international affairs program at Temple, but there is a global studies program. So I started looking into that. And eventually I sat down with the entire list of like majors and departments at Temple University. And I just went through and started crossing stuff out, like just giant chunks. I was like, well, I am not artistic in any way and I cannot do the Tyler School of Art. Or like I crossed out all of <laughs> Uh, the engineering college or all of like science and technology and I was like I cannot do any of this and eventually I was left with uh, like tourism and hospitality management um, in the school of sport tourism and hospitality management and I love sport and recreation don't get me wrong I grew up playing sports um, but I just it wasn't something that I was like super I'm passionate about it but not super passionate in the fact that I could see myself doing it and event and entertainment management wasn't a thing actually it's a brand new program just starting out uh, this year so it was just between the two. And I was like, tourism and hospitality. This actually seems kind of interesting. So I took a class with it and that professor just hooked me. Shout out to Dr. Ben Altschuler. I will send this podcast to you after, but I took <laughs> this business of leisure class with him. And I, I think I just, I fell in love with the entire major. I like, it sounds so cheesy to say, but I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I can do tr- like tourism for a living. Like, this is amazing. Um, And so I, you know, like literally it was the last day of classes in April. It was, I was actually getting ready to leave and get on the train to come home. And I like dropped by like the office and I like submitted my change of program form. And I decided that I was going to do tourism and hospitality as a major. uh, And I was going to minor in global studies um, just so I could get a little bit more oomph into that degree. (laughs) I, I saw that you minored in global studies and, and what, what was that like? Were were the other, I guess what were the other people that you met outside of the tourism college that yeah. like how did that uh help um obviously I could see how it would help but but how did it help you specifically I think it was so interesting because I I loved I loved my classes that I took with them so the way the program works is you had to take like four required classes and the other three you could specialize in either global security global economy or global cultures. So I did global cultures for the obvious reason that it would kind of just relate back to my major much better. I took an anthropology of tourism class, which is super interesting. I took a class about global connections, which was examining the way that like the world kind of connected throughout the past um, few centuries. 
Uh, and I took an intro to global studies class, which was writing intensive, but it got a little bit out of each. So I learned about global like uh, security. I learned about global economy and I learned about global cultures all kind of in that one class. Um, and it was so interesting because uh, I got to meet like so many people that were obviously very different from what I was doing because I was just minoring and a lot of those people were majoring in it. So they were also taking a language. They were doing like enrichment courses by like studying abroad. Um, so it was actually super interesting to kind of see the different paths that like people were taking a lot of those people actually want to work in like the un or in a government scale and i just thought that was like really cool i think the un would be pretty sweet a sweet gig <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so how would i guess hospitality management i could i guess i'm just wondering how that would fit in the un like yeah. what, what kind of jobs do people do there because i didn't even think of that as a department there yeah, so it's interesting because I've actually done a little bit of like self-reflection, not a little bit, a lot of it of self-reflection <laughs> over the past, you know, year of quarantine. And um, I've done some internships with my program, it's required, and both my internships have been in nonprofit settings. And so I've actually kind of done a little bit of a pivot and have thought more about like going into the nonprofit industry and using the hospitality experiences that I've learned at my internships and, and within my classes and programs um, and just dealing with people in general. Um, and kind of in pivoting that into a nonprofit setting. And so that's kind of what I'm looking at now. And so I feel like hospitality is so broad in the sense that like, it's just about learning how people work and what makes them tick, I guess, and what, what makes them do what they do and kind of catering to that and making sure that like they have the best possible experience um, regardless of where they are, whether that's helping people in the UN um, in like enrichment programs and educational programs or whether that's in a hotel and making sure that you know, your guests are fully satisfied. I feel like it's just people-based and always learning about like what, what makes people do these things and why do they want to do it and how can I help them get to a better end goal than where they're starting, if that kind of makes sense. And that's exactly what I look at when it's looking at the user experience. It's, it's understanding how people act, why they're doing things, what are the problems, how to fix them. And yeah. it's so neat that you're literally in that same space. <laughs> it's it's pretty wild. I mean, I remember you and I were talking about like your final project, right? With um, Jezebel, was that it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was like going through and I was like, this is like, user. this is exactly what you would need. Like, this is user-friendly. This is like cut and dry to the point, like people can like get what they need out of this. And I, it, it related so well. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I reached out to Asia, uh when I was doing my senior thesis. And my senior thesis was my first introduction to user experience design. Uh, and um, I was uh, doing a brand redesign because I'm a graphic design uh, major. And I also Ooh. was doing a, uh, a website prototyping in Adobe XD, uh, understanding like how to set up a menu, how to get how the customer goes through the whole process. And I like taught myself all of that for my senior thesis. And I called up Ostia to test <laughs> the website and for me to show her everything and practice my presentation. And uh, we kind of looked at each other like, how are we doing the same thing? <laughs> it was really crazy. <laughs> It was very, it was a very trippy experience. I was like, are we doing like the same thing just in different majors and with like different specifications? <laughs> That's basically the, what we were doing. The funny thing that happened was I remember I told you that oh, yeah. <laughs> I read a book um, and, and you said, there's absolutely no way that you read that book on your own. 
Oh my God. Experience economy, Pine and Gilmore. When I tell you that that is a tourism and hospitality management students Bible in their first like year there, it's insane. Like it's, it's, that's what we read because all of our entire major is about the experience economy. It's how do you sell an intangible product to people when they can't really see what it is that they're getting. So how do you make that visible and how do you cater that to people? And it was crazy because you were doing the exact same thing. (laughs) It was like, so, so I actually found this and I'm going to link this in the description, but, um, I, uh, I found the exact, uh, um, event that I was at uh, when I was on co-op in New York I went to huge which is an advertising agency in Brooklyn and I went to an event there and this person was um, giving a presentation and I just went because it was free um, and I was like free information I'll go after work and so I went and um, uh, she said pretty much you absolutely have to read this book um, it changed my entire career and it totally changed the way that you look at just business in general. Um, and uh, I said, okay. And I ordered the book on Amazon and I proceeded to uh, fall asleep every single time I read it yep, until I got the right. audiobook. Huh? <laughs> yeah, no, I fell then- asleep every time. <laughs> and, and then just because <laughs> it's such a dense book. And then uh, I got the audiobook and got through it and it completely changed everything that I looked at. The, the idea that um, the I, I didn't understand really the concept of like what a commodity is. I, like, mm-hmm. Obviously from uh, econ class, we, we had the definition, but it's, it's like the best way I can think of it is uh, anything that you look at this thing and you don't really care what brand it is. You don't really care anything about uh, it other than is it the thing that's cheapest? Yep. Uh, like, like that's, that's all I care about. It'll get the job done. It's fine. Like I'm looking at like an office chair in my room. I'm looking at, um, like a shoe. Like, I don't care what brand that shoe is as long as it's affordable and it works. Um, but, but then the idea of going from goods and services, not really being enough to really Mm -hmm. get the customer and then moving into the experience space and that's where product designers, that's where user experience designers are. And that's also where you are. Um, so I, do you want to talk a little bit about, obviously, I, I only learned about it by myself reading the book, but you spent so much time in all of your so many <laughs> classes talking about it. I want to know, like, was there anything that was like, uh, interesting, like insights that your teachers talked about, or I'm just really interested. <laughs> yeah, you give me too much credit. Sometimes I also <laughs> fall asleep in those classes too. But um, it's so interesting because, like, you talk about goods and services, and yeah, you think like an office chair, your shoe, and stuff like that. And I think that's what mind boggled me at first about like the tourism and hospitality industry in itself. It's because it's not really a like a tan. It's not something you can hold in your hand. You know what I mean? So it's all about that next level of like service and like what makes an outstanding service. And I think the way that we talked about it in class was um, using like coffee as an example. And so like the, the good, the, the commodity in itself is like the beans. Right. And so you can sell those cheap, affordable, whatever. And the goods and services actually like creating the coffee and like giving it out to you, but the experience, and that would be like your regular like barista or like a whatever. But then the experience is actually calling them a barista and having the full coffee shop and having you go in and experience like a nice theme and like stuff like that. 
And I think that's the best way to kind of describe our industry is in the fact that it's all about that theme and it's all about creating that experience for the customer to enjoy so that they want to come back. And so when they walked in, they weren't really sure what they were going to get because like, yeah, I can get a cup of coffee, but like, what's all this extra stuff? And so we create the extra stuff, so to speak, and like create a memorable experience and a memorable sort of thing for you um, to kind of go through. I think that's the best way that I can explain it is with this coffee shop example, which again was in business of leisure, thanks to Ben Altschuler. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> oh, so I... I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to collect my thoughts just because like, there's so much that I learned <laughs> from that book and, and, and everything about it. But so when, when I approached something like this, um, there is, there is so much wonderful work that's been done by user experience designers mm-hmm. um, in like how you approach the problem, how you do your research, all the different people that are on your team, moving through the process, testing it, like getting data back on it, using a data analyst to like put everything together. So we have one way of looking at it. How, if, if you were to, let's say maybe work in an agency or work uh, for a company where this experience will happen, how how do you really approach um, taking somebody's business who's currently at a, a commodity and helping them move more into that experience hospitality space? Yeah, it's all about kind of like um, theming it. And it sounds, theming is not really a verb, but I'm going to make it a verb. And so it's all about adding some sort of like extra, I don't want to say pizzazz because that just seems very like middle school of me to say but like something extra to the whole experience like in Disney you kind of have all these like movies and stuff but Disney's created a like a whole world global enterprise on capitalizing on the fact that people want to experience more out of what they're getting and so like you have things like these theme parks you have their streaming services you have memorabilia so like swag souvenirs it's like a really good way to kind of add something extra and so now you're giving somebody something tangible to hold like a picture a keychain or something like that that they can like look back on that experience fondly and like go back and do it again because they have such a good memory and on on top of that it's not just about that stuff the stuff that you give them it's also about the service that you provide them it's all about the people too if the people that you work with don't buy into it either, then how can you, you know, market that to, to just general consumers? If I don't, if I'm working for Disney and I don't believe in it, how am I going to market it to you, a tourist? Um, And Mm. so it's all about getting a a theme that everybody can kind of believe in and agree on, and then agree to market in a way to people um, to kind of get them to that final point of enjoying that experience and wanting to come back. If that kind of makes sense and helps. Yeah, and I, I remember hearing about Disney and and how uh, like the the use of the word cast member yeah. uh, for everybody to be on the same page and and like have everybody be like kind of this uh, uh, connected front of uh-huh. yeah. uh, how everybody's on the same page and every, everybody's working together. Um, and I don't know, it just it just seems it seems so neat the way and and uh, another one um that i remember is uh the the rain shower at the um the museum i know that that was an example at at some point where there was this museum that uh 
you could just for 10 minutes stand in this dark room in this rain shower where you there's one circle where you don't get wet and you just <laughs> sit there and stand there for 10 minutes and have this amazing experience and you don't take anything home nothing's material but it's so much more valuable to you than a t-shirt from the museum or or possibly even anything else in the museum to other people That's and i cool. I, I it's like it's like looking at something in 3D when you've only ever looked at anything in 2D <laughs> when it comes to to uh what you offer a uh as a as a company I don't know like it it's it's just the, the coolest thing and 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 we've been learning a lot about how um most people have gone uh so much less material than yeah. it used to be and I wanted like I wanted to hear a little bit about what you think about that how it seems like as as years go on people want less things yeah I think part of that is like generational like obviously minimalism is a huge trend these days I suppose um but I think it's interesting I think it's a generational thing because I know like my parents are when we go on vacations my mom wants to take pictures of everything and I just want to stand there and soak it all in like I could care less about the pictures I just want to live in that moment and like you know be there fully present and maybe it's partly due to technology too that I mean we can capture things so quickly and that we feel sometimes that our whole life is slipping away because we're always on our phones or doing something like that and this is not to like tell people as a PSA to like get off your phone because I (laughs) really badly too but like a lot of times, at least people I feel like in our generation M like want to live in that moment and be in that moment and they want to walk away with something bigger than themselves or like an experience, a transformational experience, if you will, that will kind of like, you know, it's a moment that they can come back to and be like, yeah, like I did that. And like, that was cool. I feel like that's why things like, like skydiving and parasailing and like all those like crazy experiences that like, I feel like 20, 30 years ago would have been way more like not as popular as they are now are way more popular today because people want that experience they want that that thrill that like living in the moment I feel like that's a really big piece of like why the service industry and why like tourism and hospitality in general has just like taken off you know what I mean I I had a opportunity not opportunity but I had time uh to (laughs) to look at uh uh watch some of the YouTube videos that are connected to your college uh within Temple and uh and what one person was talking about um uh research when it comes to hospitality research understanding all the different problems trying to find solutions and he was talking about how hospitality management is is in some parts uh, making sure that some sort of big event or something that's happening goes smoothly, mm-hmm. everything's working around. Like it's kind of like making sure all the cogs in the machine yeah, uh, yeah. work well. Um, but then he also said, um, "There's another side of it where he said, and I, I love the way that he phrased this: that you're working in the businesses of promise. Like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're saying." if you come here, I promise that you'll be happy. Uh, you will empty your wallet. You'll come home with no material items, but I'm promising you that you're going to be happy. And he said that, that the way that you approach research um, for your industry is completely different than how people that have physical products 
have to approach their research. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I really like that. Say that again about a promise. It's he's he said we're in the business of promises. Yeah. So so yeah, <laughs> like if you come here, you'll be happy. And I'm like, that's a pretty good business. Yeah, I think. And then the worst part though is when it like doesn't happen. And so then the research aspect kind of like goes back and is like, okay, well, how can we make this better? How can we do better? How can we change this so that it suits what people need? Because a lot of the time, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and so the research kind of goes back and like uh, shows you what has worked, what doesn't work. I think hospitality research can, yes, be kind of boring sometimes, but I think from what my professors have always talked about, and I feel like I know the professor you might be talking about in this video, if I, if I have an <laughs> idea. Um, I know all the professors, we're a very small school. Um, but yeah, that like, it's all about that promise and, and how we can make it, how we can make it work and how we can make it better. I, that's, I love that. Wow. Go professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it was, uh, it stuck out so much to me the way that he said that because, um, uh, I was, it was like an hour long thing I had in the background. And honestly, a lot of what they were saying about hospitality research was really going over my head, but yeah. it's almost as if my attention like zeroed in. Cause the way that he, he, uh, spoke about it was so easy to understand. And, uh, and it made sense that, uh, you're in the business of promises. I, I, wanted to ask a little bit about um so th there's research and right now I'm learning about um I, I said this in the other podcast but uh, <laughs> I'm I'm doing a, a six month uh program uh not six month a uh, six week program um uh talking about uh in the google analytics analytics space because I want to be um have some more analyst uh, skills. Um, and so when they talk about that, they, they talk about um, the possibility of adding AI to the process and making things go smoother and uh, adding uh, more and more tech. Like if, if you're, and I remember I, I listened to your podcast that you were on with a couple of the people in your school and you oh my gosh about... you listened to my capstone podcast <laughs> no way I, I, I try to do a lot of research for you. <laughs> I love that wow but I remember one of the examples you said was we're using a lot of paper or one of one of your friends said that yeah uh, and so we're trying to do more iPads and I was I was listening to someone else talk about um hospitality management and they said that um, when it comes to people integrating technology into their industry, hospitality is is not at the top. Um, uh, and, and so I guess they're they're including restaurants in that and, and things like that. Um, I want to know, have you ever talked with people about the integration of AI and and like making things smart and then reducing people in the workforce and then replacing them with yeah. uh, with tech? Is, is that something people talk about? Oh, my gosh. So much. So um, I feel like you've probably heard of like SWOT analysis of like strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. And you're basically analyzing it based on a company or an idea or something like that. And a lot of the mm -hmm. times technology, at least to me, is both an opportunity and a threat. And so mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for the industry because I, I mean, it would make things so much faster, you know, workflow AI is becoming so fast and so intuitive. You can kind of like sense what you need. And if there's, there's always a program out there for what you need, whether that's like using an iPad to get like Excel on there and like, you know, write out stuff so that you have less paper or whether that's a check-in process at a hotel 
it's such an opportunity because it makes things easier, right, on other people. And we're in the business of guaranteeing these promises and that, you know, we want these things to be the, the best they can possibly be. But at this, and honestly, for sustainability reasons, and I'm like really big in sustain, into sustainability, it's something that I'm looking into a lot. I mean, it would just make things so much better sometimes, you know, less paper obviously is going to be better. But in terms of like a threat, I think that the reason and like, obviously, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or any sort of whatever to like have these actually facts. But I mean, in terms of threats, it's scary because you're talking about taking away people's jobs. And in an industry that's so focused on you know, consumer interaction, face-to-face interaction, it kind of takes that away. So A, losing jobs and B, maybe AI isn't the best in some of these situations. And so it's kind of a hit or miss because it's either that the AI will, or whatever it is, will work in the fact that yes, it'll make your service faster, but at the same time, you know, it takes away that face-to-face and it takes away that customer interaction, which can sometimes also lead to um, later issues and maybe it not being the best experience for the consumer. So it's very hit or miss. Um, I feel like it, it's, it's so dependent on, on what you do and whether or not, you know, your customers or your clients are going to like it or not. Um, it's very based on your target audience. I think sometimes it's, it's always something that I was also kind of on the fence about because you, there's this mind of like, well, where are these people going to go? uh right. that are doing these jobs like what's going to happen to them um and uh the same can be said uh um about conversations other people have with other industries like uh if we switch energy resources where are the people that are currently uh mining our energy sources what are they going to do um yeah. and so if you if that can also be said about the hospitality industry um i i was talking to someone recently um, uh, and, and she actually works at Disney now, which is Ooh. cool. Um, but, uh, but before she got into, uh, Disney, um, she used, uh, AI, uh, to make the process faster and so that the people on the team could do more work and, uh, and the people on the team were efficient and, and nobody needed to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so, what she did was uh, she was working with this hotel and uh, she helped the hotel owner in Florida um, uh, have code systems on all of the doors so that he knew when the doors were open. Um, And since they were direct uh, open to the outside, he would be able to save money on making sure that the um, the air conditioning uh, didn't go crazy because the door was left open. Um, yeah. He also on the codes on the door, he the um, the people would that would come in and clean the uh, the rooms would be able to uh, put in a code to uh, send a text message to the people that were going to do the next next tax task on that room, and it was just so interesting how how you can make this instead of a replacement more of a collaboration between the people and the the tech yeah I think that that's so much I mean obviously that's just so much better than people like outright losing their jobs I think that it's interesting because in the hospitality industry we're still trying to figure out ways that we can make it like work for us because I mean you think at least to me you think technology and you just think like okay check in that eliminates all of the need for front desk like an AI 
but if you can have it work collaboratively like with with both I think that's obviously a better outcome for everybody but I think it's a matter of like figuring out where technology and like human capital can kind of fit together um, so that you get the best possible outcome and that nobody's winning or nobody's losing out of that outcome everybody's winning I I was listening to someone uh talk about this and I was listening to somebody else talk about um uh the idea of uh kind of kind not like I don't know how to say this like chip reading or or kind of like your identity being connected to your phone and then Mm -hmm. you can walk into a restaurant and there's a profile on who you are and what you like and then you sit down and then the waiter just brings you what you like and like the whole idea of the interaction um uh with the guest kind of being this this uh analytical thing that you just walk in and they just bring you what meets your flavor like your profile and it was just a totally different way of thinking about restaurants that that's that's actually really cool but then you think about it from like the consumer angle of like if I'm walking into a restaurant and somehow they just know what I want I think that might scare a customer more than it would it would help them I don't I yeah I like the idea don't get me wrong but I think that's where like the tourism hospitality industry is like trying to figure out like is that something that like our customers would like because like most people are still scared of AI like I could probably talk into my phone right now and eventually an ad would show up on Instagram for something (laughs) and like that freaks me out even though it's happened so many times I'll be Mm. talking about like oh I think I'm gonna buy a new pair of beats phone you hear that and like tomorrow (laughs) I'll get an Instagram ad about like buying beats which I am in the process of doing so like it helps but still and so I feel like sometimes it it's like it would work it it's a totally progressive and it would work as an idea but then when you put it into practice I think it might freak out people more than it it helps so it's like a weird balance of like what's going to work for people and what's not going to because people have so many different comfort levels when it comes to technology and 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 those interactions so cool right (laughs) he yeah he he was also talking about how um uh, the, the same person who brought that up, he he compared that to how that happens even naturally now. Uh, the, the the old school idea of the the bartender that knows your order, um, yeah. and he said that there was someone that that knows his order, and he went to the place and he wanted to try something new, but the guy already made him the drink, and he's like, "Well, I guess I'm having this." We so the idea of does that? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> called Richie's it's like you go there twice and he like already knows what you want and I'm like well I guess I can't order something different like (laughs) it's yeah that happens too it's it's the whole like oh they know me like it's more comfortable I I wanted to ask you so so there's the whole idea of like um AI and and using tech and and approaching problems that way and collecting information that way which is really cool but on a totally different tangent, um, when when I was reading through your um, uh, your LinkedIn bio, um, you <laughs> talked about I, I, do, I do a lot of stalking. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to be honored or freaked out. I think I'm more honored. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that you you talked about is something that that you really focus on uh, in your career um, is conflict mediation. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, um, uh, and, 
and how that relates to your job. And, and also that's the entire user experience. And I can imagine for myself uh, on, on the user experience side, um, trying to understand like that, that could be a frequently asked questions that could be a customer support um, situation. But I wanted to hear about you because uh, you've probably learned a lot about conflict mediation in the tourism world. Oh my gosh, so much. And my first experiences with conflict mediation actually came from being an RA. So I was a resident assistant at Temple University for the last three years. So I dealt with um, freshman students coming in and living in our residence halls. And um, that was my first real experience with like proper like conflict mediation. And that was between two 18 year olds, which honestly sometimes is the scariest part of that job. But <laughs> um, 18 year olds can be scary. Like, whoa. And mean. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Right. And so that was my first experience into like conflict mediation and how to kind of deal with that. And as I started like doing that, I found that um, a lot of those experiences translated into the tourism hospitality kind of industry. Um, a lot of the times when like customers or like clients at my internship at the gift of life family house, when they would be getting like agitated about something, I would pull out all of these like skills of like calming and reassurance and like, how best can I like help? Like here's some options, solutions. Do you need me to just listen? Um, and I think that that part of the human interaction is kind of what makes technology so difficult to integrate. Sorry to like get back to that, but it's the human interaction portion. I feel like that's so big, like a, a something like AI won't be able to sometimes answer my questions or help me out when I'm having this sort of crisis, but a person will. Um, and I think that's like the big thing is that like that conflict mediation, those skills that like I learned some, some sort of AI, like wouldn't be able to, to help out with, if that makes sense. <laughs> I can totally relate in the uh the helpline phone mm. calls like when you're on customer support and they're like here are seven options and i'm like what i need is none of these seven options right, I'm, I'm like gonna... give me a person <laughs> yeah just like cover my eyes pick a number maybe i'll talk to a person at some point right but uh i i did want to ask you a- about your uh being an RA because you were an RA for a long time forever and you went with you you were with so many uh uh, students over the time I my mom uh was an RA in college at Delaware and she uh described uh uh one one time where she had to go to the hospital with a resident because the the boy got so angry and he was drunk uh, that he punched through one of those uh, glass um, containers for the uh, fire extinguisher. And you know how those are mesh? They're like metal mesh? Yeah. He punched forward and then pulled his hand back and she had to take him to the hospital. Oh, that just sounds painful. So that's that's something where it's crisis management. But I, I wanted to hear about like, I mean, it's one thing to say, uh, give them different options and things like that. But when you're in the moment and when you're trying to plan for these things, like, how do you actually approach this? And and doing it so many times, you probably have an idea of like, you you don't really look at the people as like, this is an individual thing. This is an individual person. I've never dealt with this before. It, I'm, I'm sure you kind of look at it like, okay, this is the type of situation I know how to handle this because I've been doing this literally for years. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of background. So I became an RA uh, 
at the like midway through my freshman years when I got the acceptance of the job. So I started my sophomore years. At this point, I was only 19. Um, and then I was an RA in one of our suite style residence halls, James's White Hall. So I dealt with about uh, my first year, I had like 25 residents. My second year, I had 40 some, 40, 44, 43. I don't know, a few of them left. <laughs> um, and then this past year, my senior year, I had to reapply and re-interview because they rolled out a lead RA position. They didn't have, thir- they had third year RAs. They got rid of them and they decided to bring them back. Um, and so it was a lead RA position. So I had to re-interview, redo it. And I was at an apartment style um, because of COVID, I was supposed to be at a different hall, but I got an apartment style and I dealt with about like 30 residents. So over my time at Temple, I think, honestly, I've dealt with hundreds of residents. I've dealt with multiple, like 40, over 40 RAs, three different supervisors. Um, and I tell you the crisis management part of it never gets old, not in a way of like, oh my God, I love crisis management. Cause really, <laughs> I, I do love crisis management. I find that I'm way better under pressure. Um, mm. but it's the fact that every situation is always different. Um, I've had countless situations of, I've had a resident threatening to punch me. I've had to bus parties of in COVID of 25 people. I've dealt oh with the police multiple times. I've dealt with mental health incidents. I've dealt with uh like suicidal ideations like not to get very dark on this podcast um but yeah it's every situation is so is so different and it's about like we go through extensive training um in August before everybody like shows up so we get to school about two two and a half weeks earlier than everybody does and we um we basically learn about like the, the protocol and the crisis management and how to deal with these situations and I think the biggest The biggest takeaway that I've ever gotten from that and the advice that I give to new RAs who are really scared to be on call for that first time because you never know what's going to happen when that phone rings. It could be a lockout or it could be like the Temple University Police Department on the other line. Like you don't really Mm -hmm. know. And the biggest piece of advice that I give to people is like, just be human. Like put yourself in that kid's shoes and like, what are they going through? What would you want to hear? What's going to help that person either calm down or feel better or realize that this is the help that they're going to need or stuff like that. Um, and a lot of those conversations are so hard. And sometimes they just, they take the oomph out of you, but afterwards um, you know that you like did your job, you did them, you gave them like the best help that they could possibly get. Um, and I think to go back to the whole like point of this podcast is that it actually relates really well to like the, the tour, I call it the THM industry for short, just because, you know, tourism hospitality management, but really <laughs> to the THM industry a lot, because, you know, in all those crises, you never know what, what's going to happen. I remember um, we deal with fire drills a lot in the residence halls and we had one at my internship. And I remember people were panicking because nobody knew what was happening. And I just was like, all right, everybody, we're dealing with this fire drill. Like it's just the kitchen. Something just caught on, like it was burnt. Like it's okay. Like doing crisis management at that point, um, which is something that I never thought that I would have to do, but I did it and it feels totally normal now to do it. Now I can, I can confidently say that I can deal with those situations because I've been in them so many times and I've, I've like walked other people through them, but it's so interesting that like, I mean, if it wasn't, I'm not gonna lie, if it wasn't for the RA job, I don't think that I would be the person I am today with all of these skills and all this, this experience to be able to help other people. I don't think I would have realized that like, I want to help people for a living. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> not to get all sappy and emotional, but <laughs> I, I am really interested in, um, what was, what was the name of it? The name of it, the, the, uh, gift of life family, family house. house yeah. That is such a unique place. And so I wanted to hear you talk about that a bit because I can imagine that the way that you approach those guests 
is totally different than you would approach guests at a Hilton or the oh Plaza gosh, Hotel. So different. <laughs> so different. Um, I I loved my time at the Gift of Life Family House. I was only there for three months. It was for a junior internship. So with our program, it's you do it around your junior year. It's about part time. So you're only working about like 20 ish hours a week. Um, and at the end of the semester, you'd have about 180 hours worth of like internship experience. Um, and so I'd only worked there at that point from like January to March. But it's so interesting because all of the people, so for some background on the gift of life family house, it's class, it's considered a home away from home. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, but it's a home away from home for people that are going through the organ donation process. So whether they're receiving an organ or donating an organ, um, basically it helps for people that live I think it's more than 28 miles outside of the city limits and need to be seen regularly by one of the many hospitals in the Philly area. So the, whether that was Temple Health, uh, UPenn, uh, well, Thomas Jefferson, Einstein, so on and so forth. Um, and so basically you'd have people staying there either like one night and just having a checkup the next day and then leaving, or you would have people staying there like long term. And so this would be like, I'm not just talking about like a week, I'm talking about months. I think that the longest people would stayed at that point was like nine months. And that was because they were going through such a rigorous process um, of like like appointments and surgeries and, and, you know, they needed to be close to their doctors in case something happened. Um, And it was such an interesting experience because those, I mean, you got to know people so well, like I would, I only, I think worked, my schedule was so all over the place. Cause I think that semester I worked like four jobs. Um, wow. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was a, it was an intense semester, but I worked like all weekends and uh, maybe like a Monday or a Thursday, if I could, depending on when I was on call back at school for my job uh, for being an RA. And um, you got to know people so well, like the, the interactions I had there were so great. I mean, there were kids, there was adults, there were like elderly um, like folks. And it was, it was so interesting because you got to know them, you got to talk with them, sit down with them. And Um, what's really interesting about the family house is that they have a home cook heroes program. So every night they have before COVID, you would, people, groups would come in and volunteer their time and they would do a lunch meal. Like they would cook there or bring something in and they would be a dinner meal on weekends. There would be brunch. And every day it was almost every day. There was like a baking group coming in. So that would help these families. So they didn't have to worry about like dinner or like food on the road. And so what we would do is like people, the groups would come in and cook. There was like a communal kitchen. Everybody would sit, eat. And then we would pack the food away. So in case everybody wanted leftovers, there was a community fridge. There was also a fridge with people's individual rooms. Um, so if they had specific stuff that they wanted for themselves. Um, and so you got to know people and got to chat with them and hear about their life experiences and stories and like what they were going through. Um, and we would, we didn't really have like a break necessarily. It would just be whenever we had a bit of downtime, um, you would uh you we would just take our break at that kitchen and so we would you would always talk to people I remember I loved working the night shift um which was like 3 p.m till about 10 ish p.m uh because you would get like dinner and everybody would come down for dinner I mean uh, the family house has about oh I can't remember 32 rooms I think um and so up there could be up to like 120 people living and so everybody would kind of come down like when they wanted to and have dinner um, and I just thought it was always the coolest, the coolest experience, honestly, um, because you just got to hear what they were going through. And yes, you dealt with like, the, you know, conflict mediation and people and paying and like, how did they going to afford this mm. and, and whatnot and stuff like that. So you got to witness all of these like little things that made the family house, the family house, but it was really like one big extended family. So 
so how i mean when when it's when i'm looking at this uh when i would call it like the user flow but yeah when you were working there what how did you guys plan how to take care of people how did you plan from the time that they 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 come in to see you to their checkout uh how do you take care of uh people like this and and like plan their experience so that something that they're going through which is so scary and and sometimes traumatic um yeah is is a little bit easier yeah so we dealt with a lot of obviously return people so like they knew our processes and stuff like that but for new families you would have a whole check-in process and we would walk through the rules like what the family house was we would give them a tour of the place um and what i thought was really cool was while our we our front desk is staffed from like 8 a.m to 10 p.m after 10 p.m there's an on-call manager there so if there was something that happened in the middle of the night if somebody was needed something there was actually an on-call manager that was like sleeping there overnight um, and could stay there uh and so if they needed something they could call in the middle of the night on top of that during like regular working hours like nine to five we actually had social workers on site so that would be if people needed to discuss payment plans if they wanted to talk through how they were feeling like what was going on, like what more support we could give them, we would refer them to our social workers. Um, and our social workers would hold like monthly events of like talking through the transplant process or like what it's like to be an organ donor or like what it's like to have an like received an organ and like what it feels like afterwards and stuff like that. Um, and so it, it basically gave folks a sense of community and the fact that they weren't alone. Cause you're right. It's a, it's a really traumatic process. And I can't even begin to imagine like what that feels like. Um, and so it created this sense of like belonging and the sense of like community, I guess, is the best way of describing it of like, I'm not alone. And like, there's other people that are here that can help you, whether that's with, you know, finances or emotions, like we got the whole spectrum of like what we can offer you. And on top of that, they never had to worry about like meals, which I think was just a huge relief on people of like, you know, you don't have to worry about cooking dinner or like needing to grab takeout all the time. Cause you know, you had a home cooked meal right there for you too, which is a bit of a comfort in that situation. I I want to ask, have you had conversations with people that went through this whole process and they're no longer visiting anymore? Did you ever have conversations with people as they were leaving and they, they told you how, what you've done and what the people that you're working with, like really impacted them? Kind of like a, we would call that like an exit interview, but it's <laughs> way less formal than that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, we kind of had, I didn't have any, like, anything as, like, drastic as that, in a sense, because I wasn't there for too long, but I know I had a couple of families that would be coming back every couple of months, so it would be, like, every six months they would come in for, like, an appointment or something like that, and so mm. we would always have, I remember this, like, one mother-daughter, um, and it was, like, an adult daughter and her mom that was, like, like, that would come and they came like only once in the time that I was staying there because they only came back every couple of months and they were just talking because at that point I was like a new intern. So everybody's loved seeing like a new face around the family house because we rotate out, they rotate out interns like every semester. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was, I remember this lady was just like, the family house has done so much for me. I love it. Like, I can't begin to thank this place enough for like everything that they've helped with and the fact that they really helped us through all of these, these problems and these issues. And like, we wouldn't have been able to go through this as seamlessly um, you know, without the family house and like, you could check out their Instagram for more. It's like at gift of life family house of like different testimonials of people saying like the same thing, which kind of made the whole job worthwhile. Like it, it was, I mean, I just remember being floored sometimes by hearing from people saying that like, 
I, that they couldn't have done this without the family house. And a lot of our, we have a shuttle program too, actually, that like would shuttle people in the mornings and afternoons to and from the different hospitals. So they didn't even have to worry about driving too, if that was something, because city driving, as you know, in Philly can be kind of, kind of scary. Just a little uh, impossible. Right. Impossible <laughs> seems like a good word. Yeah. Especially um, if you're from like a rural area and have like a bigger car. Right. Like, if you're like, from even- like, yeah if you're from like nowheresville pennsylvania to like (laughs) to philadelphia with all of its crazy drivers even i get nervous doing it and i'm like a a somewhat seasoned driver (laughs) yeah um, absolutely and we had oh sorry go ahead oh no i was just gonna i I was just gonna ask you uh what when you look at uh understanding experiences and and like the idea at the point where uh um if, if this were a product like the idea of seeing this problem that people are going through and then having the product of the family house uh you if you wanted to finish your thought uh you can but I wanted to ask you um did anybody ever tell you how this all started um and and uh how they saw this problem and and decided to do something about it yeah um I'll finish my thought and then I'll go to that but yeah. I was saying that the the shuttle, a lot of our shuttle drivers also were involved in the organ donation process in some way whether they were a caretaker or whether they were actually going through that process um so wow. it kind of like helped because they were like these shuttle drivers that people would see like every day and would be able to talk with them um and which was also just super helpful so sweet oh, I miss our shuttle drivers they were great um but I'm trying to remember how the family house started in general, but I know it's like an offset of the gift of life donor program, which actually deals in like the specificities of organ donation. And like, you know, some like the, was it the United Nation organ something? Um, And like actually like dealing with the transplants and like the actual products in itself. And so the family house I think was built in 19, oh gosh, 90 something maybe. And they like broke ground. There was only like 28 rooms. They, I think the CEO and founder, Howard Nathan, realized that like there needed to be something more for these families that were going through it. Like there needed to be something else that we could do to help them. And that's, I think, the general idea about how the family house was born was the fact that we need to help people more than what we're doing right now, mm. um, which is such a good sentiment. Like it's such a, a positive, like good feeling like we need to do more. And they did it. They did it, um, which was obviously the, it's the crazy thing about it. But um, I, I don't remember the specifics of how it started, but I know that it was built on the idea of like, we need to do more to help these people. And uh, as Americans, we don't really like uh, oh, no. think that this is like abnormal, but, but uh, in addition to like the loneliness and the fear and just even the fact that you need a new organ and the fact that your organ is not working, right. um, <laughs> that's its all own thing. But uh, the, the exorbitant cost oh my God, of yes. of all of this, I I had to get uh, I I did physical therapy for something very minor recently, mm-hmm. and uh, um, the appointments each of them were like a hundred dollars. Yeah, and I feel I like know. some people that are outside of the U.S. don't realize how expensive this is. So I could easily imagine some something like this where. Uh, an organ isn't working you have to get transplant it being like fifty sixty thousand dollars u.s dollars <laughs> yeah and like uh, i wish universal health healthcare was a thing my goodness um but yeah here everything is super expensive and so what was great about the family house is that 
I, if I remember correctly, it's only 40 bucks a night. Um, obviously you had to meet very specific requirements as to like what qualified you to stay at the family house. Like you had to be part of the organ donation process or the organ Mm -hmm. uh, transplant process in some way. And there was other specifications, but, um, it was only $40 a night and you could be on a payment plan. You could probably have a reduced cost depending on your income and what you made and like what the cost of your treatments were and stuff like that. So we had people that were paying, I think as low as, I think the lowest was like $7 um, versus to like 40. So it would be somewhere in that, in that range. Um, And so it would just depend, but we get a lot of, and so you're thinking like 40 bucks, like how the heck are you going to run this entire 32 room establishment with a running kitchen and, and whatever on like 40 bucks a night from people. But we get a lot of donations and a lot of people actually like pay four rooms in advance sometimes too there's like a Mm. program where you're able to do that and so human goodness in this case offsets the cost sometimes of like living because hotels in philly aren't cheap especially if you needed a hotel the day before an appointment that you got randomly like you know Mm -hmm. the family house was always kind of there that's incredible yeah i remember looking at hotels a couple years ago and and it was like 200 bucks a night 300 bucks a night sometimes more depending on where you are but um yeah it's crazy so uh we talked about this job that uh you you completed um but so I wanted to talk about how what your job is like now um (laughs) with the workforce initiative I wanted to hear a little bit about like you so you're working there now and actually uh you worked today and then right afterwards Oh, right. Uh, 30 minutes after you're done with work, you hopped on a call with me, which I really appreciate. (laughs) But I want to hear a bit about what is the job that you're in now and like how you're you're working with your your uh, guests or customers and uh, how does that all work? Yeah. So uh, one of the facets of the THM program at Temple is that you have to do a senior internship as well. And so the senior internship is usually the spring that you like before you graduate. So for me, spring 2021, and it's a full-time internship. It's about like 40 hours a week. It's all you're doing. You're not taking any classes. Um, and so my internship was with the Temple University Lenfest North Philadelphia Workforce Initiative. I'm going to call it LNPWI for short because it's a mouthful. <laughs> um, Even the acronym is long. <laughs> yeah, it is. It doesn't help, but it works. And so uh, LNPWI is great. It's based on Temple's campus and they work with the North Philadelphia community of people that were either recently incarcerated and coming back in returning citizens in a sense, or people that are undereducated in the North Philadelphia community, whether they're adolescents, they're adults, elderly children, um, and they help them get educated, get back into the workforce. They kind of do a myriad of things. There's so many partnerships that they work with. And so the specific project that I was drafted on to help with um, was with our new it was a new we got a grant and it was a new ish project and it's it's called the pha cares so it's the philadelphia housing authority covid19 action response and educational services like team so that's another mouthful we're just gonna call it PHA cares. <laughs> and so we're really great at acronyms here and so um pha cares was designed to help people um in senior living homes and just in in section eight housing like recipients um sort of deal with COVID-19. So uh, we have community health workers going to different homes in and around North Philadelphia, uh, basically helping with right now, it used to be a lot of like, what can we do to help in terms of COVID? Like uh, in a sense of like, is there online events that we can host? Is there anything that we can 
kind of help with that like aspect. Um, and then it kind of went to now we got the vaccine. So we've been hosting um, vaccination clinics and whatnot. So go get your vaccine if you haven't already. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's basically like helping with vaccine clinics, running it, making sure people are getting their first dose, second dose. And as of right now, now that we're going into the summer, we're still focusing on COVID-19. That's like the main, uh, you know, portion of what our project is. But on top of that, it's also helping with general health education and wellness, um, as well as just general health promotion. So we're kind of helping in creating events of like community health fair so that they can meet our team and our community health workers that go to these sites and visit them and kind of help out directly on site. So we have these residents meet our community health workers. So we're holding events to do to do that. Um, so whether that's, you know, community health fairs, we're in the progress or in the process of planning some back to school events in the summer for people so that they can get their child's physicals done and make sure that they're vaccinated before they go back to school, depending on if school's online or in person, who knows, um, and kind of helping along, along that line. So it's a multitude of different projects. That's the main project that I'm working on. That's the big one. I'm working on a bunch of other little things along in, in LMPWI, but that's the main one that I've, I've kind of been helping out. So I go to a lot of our meetings. I meet with we have a project uh, coordinator, Alejandra, who's fantastic. I adore her. And so she runs all of the meetings with the different sites. And so we currently work with not just the sites, but we, on our end, we're working with uh, Temple Health, the Greater Philadelphia Health Action or Health Association Incorporated. I can't remember the A and <laughs> the, so many acronyms. And we're working with Drexel um, mm. actually, and the uh, center the the hub or something like that the hub uh I forget what it's called now it's escaping me but we work with directly <laughs> uh, so that's cool and so I go to all these meetings so each uh entity so GPHA Drexel and Temple has taken a few of the sites and so we meet with them on bi-weekly basis with um myself and Alejandra we meet with our say Drexel team and then we meet with the actual site that they're working with and those resident leaders there and so and then other days we meet with me and Alejandra GPHA and then the resident leaders of that site and then other days we meet with me, Alejandra, Temple Health, and then resident leaders of the sites that Temple Health specifically oh has. So we meet with them on a biweekly basis to see if our programs went well, what other programs we can be creating, what else do the residents need. And sometimes it's not just COVID, you know, it's, it's mental health. It's like, what other events can we host with them that'll kind of get them out of their rooms, get them out of that isolation and stuff like that. Um, so that so, was a mouthful, but yes. <laughs> I have some questions. Sure. So first off, um, so what you're doing uh does both outreach to people that aren't residents with you and yeah. you also have residents is yeah. that right yeah okay so the, the pha cares program directly works with like resident leaders and like residents of these different homes versus mm. our other portions of lmpwi deal directly with like workforce development and so they're not necessarily dealing with like specific people but maybe other companies and entities and then they reach out to like the just general philadelphians if that and sense. and so how how is this financed or or do people uh pay to come and live with you H how does that all work um i think at least the pj cares program is run we got like a grant from temple university to like run the program i know temple i, I think i'm not if i'm not mistaken temple does finance a lot of what we do mm -hmm. because we're based at temple so we get a lot of grant money we get a lot of like money from the city and then we also work with like other nonprofits and other organizations in Philadelphia that we kind of help to push. And sometimes some of them we finance as well to help create programs. 
And and how do you how do you learn exactly what they need? Are are you ever a part of those teams where you're you're planning programming and you have to really understand like the personas of the people that that you're making this for? Yeah, it's so different because in my past experiences, I haven't really necessarily worked with the Philadelphia community like this. Like I've worked with college freshmen who are a whole different subset of like weird <laughs> and like they need something way different. They need like a pizza and movie night. And then I dealt with like people that are dealing with like an organ donation process, which is so different in creating programs for them. And then on top of that, now this is like North Philadelphia. So this is totally different. It's an area that's, you know, sometimes not as well looked upon as other areas in Philadelphia. And so it's a whole different subset of like what they need. And so I get involved in like meetings on like biweekly basis with a lot of these like resident leaders. And so like today we had one and they were saying, well, you know, like mental health is really becoming a, a topic that we need to address in some way. And we were like, oh, tell us more. And they were like, well, some residents are really agitated. Sometimes they're just really isolated. Like, can we get people to like talk with them and get like therapists here, or get like some sort of behavioral counseling at these sites to kind of help, you know, better suit their needs and better understand what they need. And so it's always a different, like, every single site actually is different in like what they need. Some of them are focusing more on COVID. Some of them are more like mental health. Some of them have like families and children. And so like children in COVID and children in mental health is a totally different like subset of what another site needs with like adults and mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's so many different like needs. And so we created a needs assessment, actually like a, a short assessment that our community health workers carry out to kind of help us with this. So on top of these meetings with all of the different like resident leaders of each of these sites, we get these needs assessments back. And so our community health workers kind of ask residents a couple of questions of like, hey, what is it that like you need most? Like, is it like this, this, this? Um, So that way we can better assist them uh, with the programming that we do. And, and what do you, what do you do with that, that data I guess how, how do you process that because I'm, I'm imagining like a whole bunch of different like uh forms or papers like how, how does that go to the next step yeah it's a lot of like online survey tools mm. um that we use I know like I don't get to look at some of that stuff because it's a little bit more like classified and like you know HIPAA and whatnot yeah. um and so my our program coordinator kind of looks at those and then goes and and when we have these meetings she'll like suggest like okay well maybe is a community like wellness event like a good idea like a community health fair um and then the resident leaders will kind of be like yeah like this is something that we could do like we could have it outside here um and it's a lot of back and forth it's a lot of like give and take of like feedback like what's going to work what's not going to work and on top of that we also have to deal with like what can like say the GPHA provide that will help facilitate this event or what can Drexel University provide that will help with this event what can Temple Health do um and so it's it's a lot of um it's a lot more like personality based and a lot more like uh like people based than you would think it's just like what what do they need and what can we talk about to kind of help them so this seems like uh, that professor talking about the the different sides of hospitality, where yeah. you have one that's more of the the gears and making sure that that all of these huge amounts of resources or people or things like that are working smoothly, mm-hmm. versus the the promise of uh, this this um, experience that you're paying to be a part of. Right. Um, so I, I wanted to ask. Uh, one thing that I'm really, really interested in is uh, how 
what you're doing um uh what the results are so i remember you said that the that um you had to have meetings to see how well your programs are doing how do you assess the success of one of your programs yeah a lot of it is based on like engagement and so are people responding to these events are people going to these events so like when we had our vaccination clinics we were like counting up numbers of how many people you know, we're getting vaccinated and we're like going. Um, so that's a huge part of like engagement and literally just counting out the numbers of like, okay, if more people go, this is usually a success. Um, we'll have our community or we also go off of engagement with our community health workers that are there. So like sometimes when our community health workers go to the site, people don't really engage with them or they think we're part of the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Oh yeah, because that's another one of our partners is the Philadelphia Housing Authority because mm-hmm. they oversee all of these sites. And so people think we're part of the housing authority and then they start asking us all their housing questions. And we're like, hey, oh. this is us. This is, if you want PHA stuff, like we'll, get, we'll send you to a different person. Like this isn't us. We're part of a different program in collaboration with PHA Cares. Um, mm. And so uh, it's, it's also like engagement with our community health workers of like, are people talking with them? Are people saying what they need? Are people filling out that needs assessment that we sent out? Um, are people responding to these events? Are people asking questions about our, to our resident leaders and stuff like that? It's a lot of like engagement and I guess the research is people-based. <laughs> so it's, it sounds like you went from um, RA, mm. uh, which was uh you're, you're, you have these residents that are paying to be there. Um, yep. And it's more, of, it's kind of more of a, it's a community, but it's also kind of a commercial thing because yep. they're paying to be in that, that space and their students. Um, then you had the, the place that it's, you are customers and guests, but you're also part of this thing that's so much bigger, which is more of a, like even humanitarian effort. Yeah. Um and so you have that, and now you're in a space that's a lot more um, uh, community building, uh, in, improving people's lives, um, and the the financing. You're not trying to get a customer; you're trying to help people that need it because the funding is coming from these various uh, sources that really care about the the thing that you're doing. the The next thing I want to talk about is uh, I saw in your interests on. LinkedIn. <laughs> That's it. I'm making this whole thing private. I'm deleting my LinkedIn. I'm moving <laughs> off the face of the earth. <laughs> that um, you also are really interested in some of the bigger things going on. So I saw that, um, uh, oh, I just had it. Uh, you were um, the assistant director of registration for the Temple Coaches Conference, if I'm saying that right. Yep, yep. Uh, and and your, your interests at least, I don't know what the last time you updated them, but uh, um, you you really liked the Eagles and you like <laughs> uh, the Olympics. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about like, you've been in a bunch of different situations, but these, these, these things that are both the promise of an experience, like I don't know a, a bigger, I, maybe some, but I hardly know any bigger experiences than the Olympics. Mm-hmm. But at the exact same time, it's this monolith of logistics and gears and people and resources. When when you think about that, and and the experience that you were with the your work at a conference, can you tell me a little bit about like what you imagine when it comes to that kind of space? 
Oh my gosh, that's so funny because I kind of forgot about the coaches conference. That's a, that's a <laughs> throwback. Wow. Um, yeah, I did that. Oh gosh, what was it like 2018, 2019? I think it was mm. 2018. And um, basically we had coaches coming in from all around the Philly area and the suburb, like the surrounding suburbs, whether they were coaches at a college level, at a high school level, community sports, um, stuff like that. Uh, we had conferences to help them kind of better their coaching and like stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm interested in events. I was in stage crew in high school and I did a lot of, uh, like stage management. And so that was a lot of like pulling off the behind the scenes work. So I think that's where originally my like interest started in this whole thing was like, oh, maybe I want to manage like events. And that's kind of where this started. And so that's why I got interested in the Eagles because I mean, fly Eagles fly and all, you know, we were all there for that <laughs> Super Bowl win. Um, but they also have a huge, like the stadium in itself, the Lincoln financial field is a giant like event in itself. Like all of these different things have to happen for it, for an Eagles game to successfully be pulled off. Right. Same mm-hmm. with the Olympics, but on a global scale of like the, the, the Olympics are just, yeah, a giant monolith. They're like huge. And I thought, I always thought it was so interesting to like work in an event capacity for the Olympics of like managing all of the different things that go into it. I like when there's like 500 billion things going on. I can't really focus if I'm just focused on one thing. I have a very, like, my mind is always like multitasking. Um, And so I thought it was so, I just, I just think that the Olympics are such an interesting, you know, like monolith to kind of like get into at some point. I just think that would be really cool. So I think that's where my whole like fascination with like events started was like, I like to work on 500 things. And I like that all of these things are so big. They're always bigger than myself. I always want to, you know, focus on other people and give back to other people, whether that's an experience at the Eagles game or whether that's, you know, working in this capacity at, you know, LMPWI. But in, in the end, it's always giving back to somebody. When when I think about this kind of space, uh, whether it's the Olympics, whether it's uh, getting your ticket checked in at a um, uh, at an Eagles game, which I've done once, it was very fun. Uh, <laughs> I got it for free. And Eagles Cowboys game, it was sick. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I forget uh, who I, I forget the other team at the Eagles game that I went to. It was a very long time ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I feel like this is a space where your job and my job are even closer um, mm-hmm. because I, I wanted to ask you uh, when in school, when they would talk about all of these event planning processes and the logistics and all the gears and stuff like that, do they ever talk to you about um apps and websites and QR codes and e-tickets and all that kind of stuff do you yeah I'd like to hear what you have about that gosh I'm a sucker for a good QR code Um, (laughs) I think I would live the world by a QR code honestly they just make life so much easier better than me having to type in a website Um, but yeah it's so interesting because a lot of these processes are obviously like online and they're just so much easier and they make people's experience better because then they don't I guess they don't at that point have to really worry about like human interaction of like purchasing a ticket like look they already have it on their phone um which I think is just a huge component of where the industry is going especially now after COVID and how like high touch things are very sensitive like Mm. we don't want things that are going to be germy and high touch like we want you know if I can just do show you a QR code on my phone and you can scan it and that's that 
that makes the experience so much better, especially in a post-pandemic kind of world. Um, and so I think it's something that we talk about in like a lot of our classes and whatnot of like, whatever you can do in that technology to like make your customer or clients lives easier, you should try and strive for. And I think that a lot of these things are going to be technology-based, even if it may not be the best thing in terms of people wanting human interaction, it might have to be for the foreseeable future with COVID-19 having such a big impact on our daily lives. I mean, the THM industry was like shut down for a while, like, Mm. you know, for it to come back, there's got to be some changes, there's got to be adjustments, whether that's in this realm of, you know, AI, whether that's in the realm of sustainability, which is like a huge portion of it, um, and whether that's, that's in the realm of whatever else, but like, there's got to be changes for it to come back the way it, it should. Absolutely. I, uh, something that, that is kind of similar to your world is, um, uh, the, the world of, uh, museum exhibits and super yeah. interactive touch screens and all that kind of stuff. I, I was listening to someone else and how their, uh, industry was also impacted. They, they worked on this, this project for, for months and months, having the super interactive LED screen, uh, L, no, yeah, the super interactive uh, screen that you could touch things and stuff like that. And they also have to totally rethink the way that they do things um, using more like motion interaction of how you scroll, push your hand over something rather than having to touch it itself. Um, and so I guess in your world, the way that you have to rethink everything, it it sounds like more like scanning and a lot less um, uh, paper, a lot less um, uh, having to hold things. Uh, Is is that what you think of when you think of rethinking your industry? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's when museums had to close and like all of these exhibits that were so interactive, like had to get shut down. I mean, I was just sad. I feel like the museum industry is kind of, it, it was, you know, kind of dying before because people could just view everything online. And mm. then, um, you know, then COVID happened and it was just felt like the nail in the coffin. And so I guess mm. now museums are kind of like switching the way that they do things to be more interactive, like online and try and get people in that way. But yeah, it's just, it's so interesting with like interactive exhibits and interactive um, like technology. I think it's, I think it's the, I mean, it's, it's obviously the present, but I think it's just going to be more of the future. The more interactive something is, the more I feel like people are going to want to do it. Um, And that's just with like general human psychology, I feel like, but even on a technology level, like Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's just where it's headed because it's, it's kind of a good collaboration. I feel like between like human interaction versus like AI, like it's, as long as it's interactive, it's, it's better than it just being, you know, a 2D, like whatever it is. Absolutely. I I just think that that what we can do moving forward from this is just going to be so neat. And and the amount of things that we can make things personal, we can make things uh, uh, like interaction design, we can do all of these, uh, these cool things that I just kind of refer to as magic and making things really seamless. <laughs> and and uh, there's a lot of work that engineers and, and designers do on the back end, but th- what they do and what they make is just so amazing so i i wanted to talk with you because i know you you've you've worked in all of these spaces before um if you could imagine yourself working at uh, in your role at disney working at uh the olympics working at maybe even the eagles um or maybe something more mid-scale in the nonprofit world um 
if if someone like me uh, came onto your team as a user experience designer or a web designer or an app designer, developer, I do a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's how, how would, um, uh, I guess, how would you want me to approach your um, space? Because I come from, uh, this is your user and you're trying to make a lot of money and you're trying to do uh, get more clicks and all this kind of stuff. Um, how would I start to transition into the way that you look at customers and uh, guests? Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I kind of love that. Um, <laughs> I feel like looking at it in a sense of like, not that the customer is always right, but that the customer sort of comes first in a sense of like, Mm-hmm. All of our dealings are always going to go back to what they need most. And so if you come in with like that idea and that mindset of like, okay, how can I make my app or my website or whatever, my technology user-friendly and make it in such a way that like they're going to want to come back? I feel mm-hmm. like that's the best idea that you can have of like, okay, coming into this with such an open mind about the fact that like... um. The, the customer is going to need something and they're going to need it to be helpful and easy and simple to, to learn because ultimately we're not teaching a class on how to use whatever it is they're going to use. So like, how can we make this the best it possibly can for them so that they can walk away with an experience that is life-changing and mind-blowing, but that they didn't have to get bogged down in some of the small details. I, putting it. I hear you saying that and I think of that sounds like being super open-minded and yep. doing a lot of testing uh, to really interview and trying to figure out what would help the the guest the most because yeah. what what you think may not be what everybody else thinks they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like being open-minded is the best way you're going to like combat a lot of that conflict and a lot of that those issues um I feel like being open-minded is the best part of the best advice that I can give to anybody really when they're going into that but especially in like these kinds of settings just being open-minded to the fact that like what you think works for you may not work for somebody else and that's okay we just have to get to a middle ground where everybody can kind of work it at their own pace I, I was listening to somebody uh, talk recently about uh, Tesla, and I know uh-huh. this is a totally different conversation, but um, uh, they were talking about Tesla and they were talking about uh, uh, a long time ago um, uh, when it was just like horse and buggy or mm. horse, um, <laughs> and you asked people like, what, what would you want? What would make your life easier? Nobody would say a car they would say, I want a faster horse. <laughs> so the idea of, of there, there is testing, there is interviewing and things like that. But the really hard thing that a lot of designers and, and people in hospitality have to do is that they have to figure out like, what is your car? Like, what is that thing? Cause, cause QR codes, I would have never asked for that. Um, uh, like super seamless, uh, um, Disney wristbands. I would have never asked for that. I would have been like, can I have a laminated, uh, uh, ticket so that if I spill stuff on it, it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I, I always wonder, uh, did, did anybody ever talk to you about, um, 
uh, how to get to these ideas on on how to make things more efficient? Weirdly, I mean, I think it's it's I feel like there's so many ideas out there that if you just sit down and talk about it with somebody about like what you want and what you need to go forward, you're bound to come up with a new idea. I think that's the beauty mm-hmm. of like human collaboration is that there's there's a new idea out there that is going to work and that is going to be revolutionary and change the world and it's going to happen we just have to talk it out and figure out how we're going to get there and what that is I think that's just the beauty of like just humans in general and our idea making and our magic what is it the sky's the limit like the sky really is not the limit like we're talking about going to Mars are you kidding me (laughs) there is no limit as, as long as it's like it's not illegal and won't put you in jail or you know you know like <laughs> that like there is really no limit to what you can do and what you can think of and what you can create so long as you have a good support system behind you to make that idea happen I think you're golden it's just it's so crazy because um the and this is kind of like just like a philosophical question but mm-hmm. it's so crazy how um uh how every 10 years um, we couldn't have ever imagined what our life today would be like, like 10 yeah, years no. ago. Like the whole idea of like self-driving car. I mean, obviously uh, everybody thinks of like, oh, we're going to have flying cars and, and like the Jetsons. And there's always <laughs> that idea of like what the future is going to be like. But even just real things, uh, like the idea that Neuralink is going to be a thing. And then it's going to totally change the way that people interact with each other and, and how... Um, uh, and how the customer um, uh, service relationship might change if if literally you're talking and and there's no words. The idea of of you having some sort of a identification marker on you and going into a restaurant and people just know what you order or what you want based on what they have and what matches your profile. I'm just so excited to see what user experience is going to be like, even like 10, 15 years from now. And both of us are, are going to be so surprised by all of these things that people are able to think up in like robotics and in, in oh, uh, um, identification, all this kind of stuff. It just, it just sounds so cool. A hundred percent. It's so interesting. Like, I mean, 10 years ago, how old have we been? We would have been 11, like, did, <laughs> right. Did 11, 12, did we even think about like iPhones becoming something like this? Like, I still remember having like the little slidey phones, or yes. like, you know, stuff like that. Like I, I would have never dreamed of some of the stuff that's happening now. I still want that back to the future hoverboard. That's, that's the one thing that I really want in life. <laughs> but like I, it's in 10 years where I feel like we're going to have another revolution of technology and like, yeah, Neuralink or like things like having I, like a bar, like just people knowing who you like profiles. It's just, it seems so interesting and so cool. And while it does seem a little bit scary, I think if used for good, I think it could be like something really special. Well, I am so glad that we were able <laughs> to have this conversation today. This has been super cool. I learned so much about you and I learned, uh, well, I know you obviously, but I still <laughs> learned so much about like uh, why you went into what you do, um, how you go about your guest process, the whole idea of looking at someone rather than a customer uh but looking at them as a guest and trying to really more emphasize empathize with them rather than just trying to read their mind and trying to figure out what they're going to do next Mm -hmm. it's a totally different way of of looking at this um 
but but thank you so much for yeah thank thank (laughs) you for doing this I mean I feel like this is you know this is Aussie and Emily from the bus this is their wildest (laughs) I like (laughs) we used to be bus buddies for those of you listening we used to be bus buddies um and (laughs) I feel like this is this is crazy thank you so much for having me on here I'm so glad you LinkedIn stalked me there's nobody else I'd rather have (laughs) um excuse me if you don't hear from me it's because I've fallen off face of the earth (laughs) but um no thank you so much this is amazing well uh before before we wrap up we'll we'll talk about uh if anybody um uh would like to reach out to us um and all of that kind of stuff I'll share what I do and then and then we'll end with uh how people can reach out to you um, so, uh, for me, uh, my name is Emily Giordano and, uh, I make, uh, uh, websites. I make, uh, I can design websites. I can develop websites. So any website that you need, interactive animations, like, uh, content management systems, hit me up and I'll be able to help <laughs> you. Uh, I have the idea of, of wanting to, um, uh, make the bridge into app design and app development at some point, but at the moment I'm working with websites and web development. Um, if you, uh, want to find me, uh, you can email me at emily at greatdesignlead.com or you can find my, uh, my company website, which is greatdesignlead.com. Uh, and now if you wanted to reach out uh, to Asia to, to learn about her, um, possibly hire her in the future because she's very Please cool and me. has a lot of experience <laughs> and has traveled the world and, and uh, has literally done every single job she could have possibly done. Asia uh, is going to tell you uh, a little bit about her and how to reach out to her. Yes. Hello, Asia here. Um, you can definitely reach out to me by email. It's super sweet and simple. It's just Asia, A-S-I-Y-A-H at temple.edu. Honestly, the best way to reach me, I, I email is part of now my social media routine in the morning. Um, but yeah, seriously, if you're part of a nonprofit looking to hire somebody who's willing to learn and willing to do the absolute best to help you achieve your company mission, I'm your girl. I can do it all. Well, and if I can't, I'm willing to definitely learn. So please feel free to reach out. Don't be a stranger. Oh, that was perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, Asia, until next time. Bye, Em. <laughs>